Our next presentation is um, Fiona and Anna from Zendesk, who'll be talking about researching the use of chatbots with customers and staff. Please join me in welcoming Fiona to the stage and Anna online. Thank you. Hello. Very excited to be here. Um, I'm not sure if Anna's online now. Yes, I'm here. Hello, everybody. Hello. Hi, um, so very excited to be here. We're going to be talking about chatbots and in the context of customer service, whether they are the better experience for consumers who are trying to get help and the agents who are actually behind the screen, but nonetheless trying to help them. Before we go much further into the talk, I just want to start with a bit of a survey. Can I get a hands up from the audience here if you've ever had to deal with a chatbot? Um, I know a lot of people are participating online, so feel free to um, put something in the webinar chat as well. Now, keep your hands up only if the experience with chatbot has only ever been positive. So the chatbot was always like so useful, so helpful. A lot of people are dropping their hands in, <laughs> and I'm going to drop my hand as well here, Anna, because I personally have had my fair share of bad bots. Me too. I, I mean, it's very interesting when you encounter like a not so positive experience with a bot, you know, there's several things that cross our mind actually when now that we're working in this bot space, it could be the technology and where it's at. It could be the match of the use case of the bot to where it's applied. It could be things like even the setup. Um, so that's why today we want to talk to you a little bit about um, how it, it's like inside the organization and the research process that helped us develop um, our bot product. So a little bit about today, uh, we're going to cover a little bit of an introduction and background into the bot space, especially if you're not familiar with it. We are very much in it, so we'd love to share some of our knowledge. We'll talk about uh, low-fi types of risk, uh, research early on for risk reduction. We're also going to be talking about how we did some research to influence priority and also how we brought in our cross-functional partners to help um, with the analysis. The last part we'll talk about is how to be data-driven when you're not a data expert. And then we'll come back because I bet you'll want to hear the answer of our take on if bots are actually good for agents and consumers. A little bit about us before we start. Uh, we both work at Zendesk. Zendesk is a global software as a service company. We provide support um, software to su help with customer support and customer experience. We have 16 offices around the world. And thanks to Zendesk, we power 130,000 over conversations, whether it's bot or human. I'm Anna. I'm a senior manager in the UX research space, and I have a team in Australia and North America. And one of the areas in which we look at is bots and messaging. And Fiona and I have worked on many of these phases of projects together. Over to you, Fiona. Thank you. Thanks for the introduction. So I'm a lead product designer on the bots and automation space at Zendes. And as you might have guessed, um, an area of focus for my team is to look at the different ways in which we can use technology to help businesses scale their support operation. And this talk that we're doing today actually draws a lot from a multi-year, multi-phase chatbot project that we work on with Zendesk. So it's the process that we went through when we were launching a new product, a product that has technology that we've never used before. And I think before we dive into our background and our actual project, I just want to acknowledge that there's been a lot of excitement in the industry. Um, in fact, 
this prediction from um, analysis from Gartner that we would have reached this point in time in two years uh, where the global spending on chatbot product would have reached 140 billion. So there's certainly a lot of um, continuous growth in investment. And I think when you hear about chatbots um, and things like ChatGPT in the news, there's generally a lot of hype about it. There's a lot of sensationalist way to talk about this thing. And it, there's, there's a tendency definitely to focus on the novelty side of the technology. Are we kind of approaching a place in time where we could replace human agents out with virtual agents? Our journey though with chatbots started, I guess, with a more sort of like tighter scope and a more um, placing technology as an assistive, um, I guess, mechanism for human agent. So instead of thinking of this as like, you know, can we just swap out the human with the, um, the bots, with the automation technology? We think about this technology because we want it to, we think there's a place where it can really shine when it's actually helping people, when it's actually helping agents with things that humans are just inherently bad at. So it could be tasks that are either really boring. People don't like to do boring things, right? Do you like doing the same thing over and over again? So we see technology really shine in that space. And yeah, and like with um, many great product story, our story starts with a problem as well. So the problem space that really kick-started all of this was something that we noticed more prevalent in the smaller and medium-sized businesses where it's logistically actually really challenging to scale your support operation. So you can't really just expand your call center just because it's Christmas and you have a high volume of tickets that's incoming. So businesses um, that have this sort of problem generally will turn to other solutions, like starting to build out a public repository of help center so that you, know, you can start fostering a culture of self-service. And it is was off the back of like this space where we made our first foray into machine learning powered feature. Um, so the first thing that we released in this space was a mechanism that would automatically suggest help sender articles to incoming email so that um, there, there's some form of deflection. And as you all who were on product here know, the moment you get something out, you get feedback immediately. And that's exactly what happened. Um, a lot of it, uh, you drop your hands really quickly when I ask about that bot experience today. And I'm gonna venture a guess here, but a lot of it might be that it felt really cool. It felt like the business didn't want to talk to you. Here's some article, go away. And that's exactly what businesses are onto as well. It's great to be able to deflag, but ultimately businesses care about their customers. They want to be able to personalize the experience. They know that there's only so much that the technology can do. And what they're really after is the ability to take their customers through a series of steps because not everything can be handled by a bot. You want to work out what are the things that can be handled by a bot without needing that human and what are the things that needs to be passed on to um, a human agent who can provide that human touch. So Anna, I think we have this um, graph that we prepared ahead of time, which I think illustrates the sentiment, the mental model about technology at that time really well. And I'll pass it over to you to talk about how research helped us kind of like rethink this mental model over time. Thanks, Fiona. Yeah, and, and as you'll note, like this diagram, it really illustrates that early on um, in this stage, 
there's a lower reliance on bots and there's still a very high reliance on agents. And over time, you'll see that it shifts and we'll kind of talk about the research that helped shift uh, that a little bit. But first up, we'll talk about this early stage research that we worked on. And one of the challenges that we had was how do we do research when we don't have um, the, a, a fixed product yet? And we want to uh, avoid like overinvestment very early on when it's a high risk project. Um, data science, engineering, all of those efforts can be very expensive. And then the other thing that we're going to talk about in our early phase is about how we use use cases to help uh, drive engineering and data science efforts. So the first thing is, this is our storyboard that we use to um, speak about the bot experience with customers. Before we use this, we also tried without, but basically what happens is if you use something like a storyboard, what we found was there's a container or a frame in which your customers or participants can give you feedback. Um, some things to note here, a lot of the things that we talk about is very tool agnostic. What we tried to do is use what tools we had at hand. So a lot of the cases we use Google Suite and Google uh, Slides and Spreadsheet, but you could use anything. A little bit about this drawing, you'll see that this maps out a user journey for one of our customers to drive and develop their own bot experience. Um, everything is very high level. There's not much detail so that the participant can give you feedback without feeling that it's based on a particular design. And that's really, really helpful, especially early on in the project. The second thing that we did, which was very interesting, was we used, um, again, Google Slides to map out use cases. A couple of things to note about here. You can see that we are dialing in from different locations. Um, even in this call on Zoom, because again, we're a global company and also our customers are very international. So we have to um, facilitate a conversation in a way that's realistic and um, accessible. So a couple of things to note about this use case and flow capture is we're getting an understanding of what our customer is trying to achieve and their imagination when it comes to like, how can it be bot enabled? The good thing about this exercise was a couple of ways in which we won um, some buy-in from our cross-functional partners. One of them was as a result of mapping out these flows, we were able to turn them into use cases. So we're essentially speaking the language of our product partners. So that was one thing. The other thing that really helped us get buy-in very early on was um, our product partners had a, a couple of customers that they had in mind that they wanted to participate. And rather than just having a random set of customers, what we did was we balanced out these nominated customers with a random set so that we avoid or minimize designing for a select few set of customers. I think Fiona is now going to talk about what happened after these use cases got uh, discovered during this research. Yeah, so a really big thing at that time was actually for us to be able to work in a really open manner, ensuring that all of our cross-functional partner has the ability to kind of like just drop into our project and see how it's going. And by being able to work openly, we encouraged and was able to um, get the data science team to always be checking in and use the use case studies that we are discovering in order to tune the model that they're working on. So there was a lot of tuning and testing that got done like earlier in the process. And that was really good actually, because um, part of this like tuning and testing model, we were actually able to convince, I guess, the go-to-market team as well as the senior leadership that we have something that's really viable here. So that was actually the last thing that we needed in order to get the product out of the door, or at least a very early version of that product at that time. 
And the moment we got it out of the door, um, as you all know, the work is never done. So, and I'll hand it back to you to talk about, you know, what happens after you got the initial version out of the door. How do you work out what are the most important thing to work on next? What comes next? Thanks, Fiona. Yeah, um, it's always a challenge when the next step is you have an idea of what to work on next, but it's differing opinions. So this is the phase that Fiona and I worked on prioritization and also the other interesting thing what we did which we want to highlight with you and share with you is a form of dynamic analysis to not only shorten turnaround time but actually we wanted to make sure that uh, team knowledge and context was built and developed right before the uh, research report was complete so we're going to con like continue down this journey of this research phase two um, here's an example of us doing a prioritization exercise with our, one of our customers. So there's a couple of interesting things to note here. You can't hear it, but as they are dragging and dropping and prioritizing what's important for them, they're actually giving us some context and explanation of why it's important, which gave us some depth and understanding about these different features. The other interesting thing was that we've actually made space for them to suggest things that we hadn't even thought about. So what was very interesting was, yes, there were things that we had suggested that were important, but there was actually a whole bunch of other things that we didn't even think about that our customers were suggesting and ranking and providing some input into. Um, with this, we were able to actually resolve some internal conflicts regarding what to do next and what should be uh, an important priority. This leads on to the second part that I mentioned, which is this dynamic analysis. So uh, we have um, a picture here of us actually dialing in and it's a watch party. Essentially what we are doing is we have a cross-functional team, Fiona and I and a couple of engineers, and we are watching a customer interview that we have done with that prioritization exercise. And this is where the fun, fun dynamic analysis comes in. In this Google sheet, we are capturing line by line what the customer is saying. So here's an example of our team being super accurate and they're capturing even that the dogs are wrestling. And one person is writing this down, another person is summarizing it, and another person is categorizing or tagging things. So the brilliant thing about this is you can slice and dice the data in many different ways that suit this project or beyond. By using this method actually for future phases, we can actually add more data to this so the data set becomes richer and it allows for us to use this data in different ways. I would say the difference between this and affinity mapping is this allows for a little bit more flexibility. With affinity mapping, you're pulling it a certain set across and analyzing it and clustering it with a certain goal in mind. Whereas this one, we can change the tags or change the categorization and then we can look at the data set and we have the original quotes, which is very, very helpful. So now Fiona is going to talk about what happened after we did this affinity mapping. Yeah, no reference to Pat's wrestling in my slide here, but nonetheless, <laughs> a great story about accountability. So this format was also a really good format that we used to ensure that we are holding ourselves accountable. So we found all of these great nuggets of information, insights that customers are telling us, what are we going to do about it? Um, what Anna and I did was we carved out a special section, a new tab within that spreadsheet, where we will document any recurring themes that we were seeing. 
So right there, uh, we'll have a column where we summarize what is the theme or what is the key insight that we, we're noticing from the participants. And right next to it, it's a good collection of the actual verbatim quotes. So it's really traceable and it's really easy to see which customers are driving which, um, uh, which work. And then once we've done all of those and the, I guess the collection is um, at a healthy state, we would invite our cross-functional partner to go through a grooming exercise where we'll decide, what are we gonna do about this? Are we gonna um, create a Jira story about this? Is this a bigger task? Uh, does it get converted into an epic? Or there are also certain things that we will decide that it's not the right time, not the right place for us to address. So it's a really great tool for visibility as well because now we have a track record of all of the decisions that we've made as a team, whether we decided to action something or not. Um, so it's a great tool for uh, to ensure that you're doing something about the things that you're discovering. Now we've talked about accountability. Let's switch track a little bit and talk about agility. Um, so I've got here a great story where we were able to convert learnings, so the information that we're getting from customers, into an outcome in the short two sprints. So that's generally how long the, the sprints are, the engineering sprints are at Zendesk. Um, because we were rotating through a lot of uh, engineers, so a lot of the programmers were actually sitting on the call with us, a lot of them are actually primed through the sort of thing that they know <laughs> they will have to fix soon. So it was no surprise to our engineering team by the time we um, went to them and told them, hey, we really need to do something about the bot's speech timing, that the bot was um, a lot of customers um, in, that early, um, in that early release were complaining that uh, the bot talked too fast, that it felt unhuman-like, uh, the, uh, the user would send something through and the bot would be like, Zoo! send a response immediately. So uh, the engineer kind of knew the work was coming and was well prepared to handle this sort of work. So they were able to turn it around very quickly. I think to this date, um, I don't know about you, Anna, but this remains a highlight for me personally because we were able to close the research, send out um, the gift voucher to all the participants and inside the email, when we thanked them, we were able to tell them that, hey, you know what? This, 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 and this thing that you were complaining about, the next time you log back into our product, it's fixed. So your voice has been heard and your opinion mattered, and we fixed the product because you've told us um, that they, certain things didn't work for you. So it was a really great um, outcome. Hey, um, I think you have a, a, a testimonial or something from one of our partner. Yes, yes. So um, Dan here, who we worked with uh, in quite a few of these phases of the project, he it's nice to hear what we're hearing from the customer externally, but also at the same time internally. So some of the recognition that we got from doing this work, which was really great to hear, was how it really surfaced some no-brainers. So some quick wins that actually we could go for, some low-hanging fruit. But also this research and the prioritization really helped to bubble up things that were very important for the customer that we actually didn't think was that important. So it's been a great um, testimonial so far, both externally with our customers and then internally with our own project team. Now we are almost at the last phase of our presentation. So we've got about a third left and I think Fiona is now going to cover off how to bring in data, especially if that's not your area of expertise. 
Yeah, so this section was particularly relevant to us because um, obviously we were working on a project where there's a lot of people who came from that data analysis background. There was data scientists as well as analysts that we were working with. But I'm personally a firm believer that you don't need to have technical skills. Anyone could really adopt an evidence-based and data-driven approach in your design work, in the recommendations that you're making as well. Um, but I think the unfortunate side is when um, within the organization, this type of data analysis work does tend to fall under the responsibility of people who can actually code, people who have the technical skills, who can wrangle an SQL code and pull certain metrics from their database. But please do not let that deter you, because um, I think uh, when, when we approached this, what really helped was us um, when we started conversation about what needed to change process-wise. What, uh, what training should designers do in order to be able to do this? Um, can we pair with someone? So pairing and shadowing are also a really great way to make sure that you're involved. But um, I've always thought that people who are really familiar with the real use cases, the why, the human motivation, the needs behind um, like a number or a metric could really help the team interpret and understand, hey, why is that metric really high? Or why is that number really low, much lower than we expected? So I think we can really offer a unique um, point of view when uh, this type of job are happening. So um, start by scrutinizing the process that you have within your organization. Um, if you want to get started, is this something that you could get involved today? And um, I do a lot of pairing with my engineers as well when I do this sort of work. So there's, um, and, and I realize that when you rely on someone else, I think it's all about communication. So it really helps if you can actually articulate what is it that you are after? What is the information that you need to pull? And a really good counter question to us is also, if I don't have this number, does it really matter? <laughs> like, the, would I form certain opinions differently? Or a really good one to us is also, by having this information in this data point, is it gonna unlock any additional value for the business as well as for the user? Like, does it actually de-risk certain decision as well? So that's a really good um, point to kind of like check in on. Um, this quote from Jared Spool, um, which um, is something that I always like come back to, um, and I think we'll demonstrate with a few examples over uh, the next couple of slides. I, I think it's really good because it kind of like, you know, we talk a lot about the qualitative side of things, the understanding, you know, the what and the why, and if you have access to the qualitative, it could actually tell you the scale of the problem. And it really helps with things like prioritization and understanding is that the most important design decision that you should be making. So let's go through a few examples and I'll also talk about what we did as well as what is the influence and what is the outcome that it had on, the, on this project in particular. So um, here I've got a very typical chart that's used. Um, so you'll see this in tools like Google Analytics. It generally describes what is the volume, the level of engagement that your user have with your product over time. Now, when we pulled this information for the product that we were working on at that time, we didn't really have much of an onboarding experience. Um, so we've launched something very lean and there wasn't really much um, of a sort of like guided um, onboarding experience. And we needed to work out what level of onboarding do we want to um, bake into this product. 
So this sort of information was really useful because we um, also asked uh, customers in that research interview, like what, what do they expect? Uh, what sort of information do they want to be available in that early stage? And we complemented that with the quantitative analysis that tells us that, hey, there's a flurry of activity generally at the start. So a lot of the bot um, building activity actually happened really early on. But customers don't really treat bot building as something that you do once, publish, and then you're done with it. They do come back again and again. They monitor the usage, and they make certain tweaks. They move things around within the bot. So this was the sort of thing that gave our team the, I guess, the, um, the much needed proof that we needed that uh, we could actually push back and just focus on the core functionalities in that initial onboarding. And the ancillary and the more advanced feature is something that we can left uh, the user to discover more organically. Um, another example that we have uh, is something that we generally call a sample analysis. So the, re the chart that you're seeing on the screen um, is the result of us pulling 100 randomized interactions that a bot that has been built using uh, Zenus um, had with a real human user. So what we did was uh, we go through those 100 samples and just manually categorize them uh, what, uh, around like the outcome. So we put them into buckets uh, like the green one uh, represents the um, percentage of user who was actually contained by the bot, so the bot was able to handle the problem on its own. And the biggest portion of the uh, pie chart here, the blue chart, represents the number of um, the, the portion where the bot ended up hand pulling an agent in. So the, uh, the bot wasn't able to handle it on its own and needed a human agent to step in. Um, this is again another example where we pull this information put it side by side with the feature requests that we had from those sessions in, with customers where we asked them to prioritize, hey, what is it that you want? Because now we have the aspirational needs, like what they want the product to do, versus what's actually happening at the moment. And it gives us a clear signal that we also needed, needed to invest in additional features that would ensure that when these handovers were happening, because they were happening quite a lot, like they were happening around 45% of the time, we needed to make sure that the ticket actually lands in the most suitable agent, the agent that um, would be able to solve the problem immediately without transferring to another agent. So that's a, another story there. Um, and last but not least, I've got a um, slide here uh, with an image that is, this is a typical, what a typical um, that monitoring software uh, that engineering team uses. And it's generally something that you don't really use for data analysis because it doesn't hold like a, um, a complete picture. Um, it's really just like uh, something that tells you the health of your system. But sometimes it just pays off to be really creative with where you're getting your information from. So in this case, I was able to pair with an engineer and we went through part of the log and we found out that certain type of errors was happening around 60% of the time if the user performs certain action. And it's actually an error that we initially thought would be an edge case. So we were very wrong and it was the sort of proof that we needed to go back to our team and be able to say, hey, we've made a bad decision, but we do have a proof now, let's address this. And we were able to reverse um, a decision that we had about our roadmap. So it really just pays off to be a little bit creative. And things like this that are not generally used uh, can be really cheap data source as well, because engineers generally need to do it anyway, because they need to monitor the health of um, the system that they um, have worked on. So yeah, that's a whirlwind 
core of, I guess, how we've used data um, in order to kind of like pull into um, uh, to sort of like you know aid our decision making. Um, Anna, what do you say we touch back on the question that we posed at the start of the session? Most definitely, let's do it. And I really loved how Fiona highlighted all this accessible data that is available that sometimes is overlooked by non-engineering, non-data science people. Okay, back to the question. I bet you're all on the edge of your seat. Are bots better for consumers and agents? Well, we'd like to think so. So as I showed before, um, there was this diagram where it was a low reliance on um, agent uh, bots and still a high reliance on agents. But what we've seen um, trending so far is that there's more of a reliance on bots as the capability improves. So what that means is it can be a win for everybody. What we what we believe is that for consumers, with bots being a little bit more better and capable, consumers are able to resolve things quicker and on their own. And this also frees up agents to apply their specialist knowledge and really handle and triage more complex cases. And then obviously it's better also for the business. So we think it's mutually beneficial for those three parties involved. Okay, we're almost out of time. So we're gonna sum up some key takeaways that we hope that you will take away from this talk. One of the things that we shared or several of the things that we shared is how we've proudly worked through these bot, uh, this bot research and how we've helped the development team. So we really wanna encourage you to think about lo-fi techniques. We went through a few different kinds, the storyboarding, the prioritization, and then the mapping out of the flows. And think about using them for especially high-risk projects, even before you have any UI or design or any code. The second thing we wanna encourage you to think about is bringing people into your research process early. And that can be in different ways, like we just demonstrated the dynamic analysis or how it can be a win for both you and your stakeholders. And Fiona is gonna cover the last key takeaway. Yeah, I think it's really important to have the quantitative next to your qualitative. So exposure to data is really important, especially if the decision that you're making are high stakes and could have an influence on your product roadmap. So with that in mind, I believe we're at the end of our talk here. Uh, we'll possibly open it up to questions. <laughs> Thank you very much. Please join me in thanking Fiona and Anna. These uh, information graphs to explain what the, 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 the sample, who we talk to in this, in this case, right? So we can do something like this, but again, it all depends on the type of data that we have. I think that with this, uh, what, what I want to, I want you to um, walk you through as well as the thought process to define whether we do something more inf infographic like or not. And recommendations, same. Right? It's can we do? Can words or can images explain better than words? What can images add to what could be recommendations or? solutions in, in these cases, right? Not much. So again, in this case, we chose to explain solutions through words, but to add something more, more to make the page more interested, we started to, we did some, some illustrations to, to illustrate them, right? Now, variety of representations. And as I said, the findings are uh, that part of the report where we can start applying more infographic elements. And so I, every time I have 
a finding, or I, I've done my research, I've done my synthesis, I have always, my, my first step is I have information written in a Word document, right? So, and then I start asking myself, right? Is the text the best way to, to convey to, uh, some information or not? Right? If it is the text, all good. We go with text. We'll apply some editorial design principles to make the layout interesting to, to see. Um, now, if it is not, right, and there is some, something here that can be told through images, what am I trying to do with this information? That's the first question. Am I trying to compare? Am I trying to describe? Am I trying to show changes in time? Am I trying to do something else? Huh? And once I have determined the purpose of what I want to do with that information, um, is there any established um, way to represent that? Or uh, can I uh, use any standard framework that everyone is familiar with to put that in, to give form to, to that information. And that is uh, the point I'm going to, to um, delve deeper into. But then there are other questions that, that came out. If there is a framework or is, um, does the information order matter? Um, are there different information groups um, and so on, subgroups that if there are, there's a p potential for color coding or for st start is to establish a code. Um, and what relationship can establish between the, the information? You know? And th those questions will help me start defining what, what to do. Now, let's go a bit deeper into, into this and, and um, the frameworks, right, and how to visualize the intentions. Now, again, think of frameworks. What can help me organize the information? What of my visual culture, right? Because regardless of uh, you having, uh, whether you have a background in design or not, we all participate in a culture that is visual and we are all familiar with what, what you're seeing and that is the, it's a common language, right? So I have what I've called simple frameworks and I have to, the, a disclaimer here, this is, um, a categorization I've done of, of work I've done in the past, trying to to classify and to find patterns in in what I've done, and I found that some of them are quite simple that I use very often. And but it is by no means exhausting because, again, it really depends on the information. So um, I have this. I have found that I use this very very often, right? When I want to do a comparison, I use tables, either two columns or multiple columns. When I want to show change in time, I use line graphs, relationships, the four quadrant graph, descriptions, arrows, right, an image in arrows. And to explain words relevance, I use word clouds. So let's see comparisons in two, two table columns. So um, comparisons is really useful to show uh, uh, before and after of, of something. In the first case here, um, you can see how um, the, the, the table is used to compare McDonald's employees before and after 
joining the company, right? So we had this project where we had to um, improve the customer experience, the, the McDonald's customer experience. And we went there, did our research, and found out that the customer experience was, was terrible because the experience of the employees was terrible. So there were these, um, these kids, right? This was a couple of years ago, um, that came all with their enthusiasm, their dreams, their hopes, and all of a sudden, they entered a company that forced them to adopt um, standardization methods, uh, a strong focus on production. Like, they were uh, devoided of all, all of those tearful characteristics to become this sad McDonald's employees that asking you, do you want a happy meal? Right? Like, and not being able to reading the, the person that they have. I mean, the person has no kids. Like, what do they really want a happy meal? So, um, we started we started using okay before and after to to show okay this is these are the characteristics of this person he's super happy and all of a sudden he becomes a very sad McDonald's employee who has to repeat 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 what the manual uh, says. Um, the comparison between two columns are also good good um, or the before and after is good to show uh, a before and after of a product after validation with users but it's also good to show pros and cons if we have to um, yeah to we have collected pros and cons of a product like we can we can show that um, so in this case what we showed is how the packaging had evolved after validating the concepts of the drinks with, with users and how we had co-designed the packaging with, with them. Now we have tables. Tables are useful ways to organize sets of data and they allow comparing uh, that data and, and drawing conclusions according to the reading order. So in the first case, the table shows the beverage that consumers uh, with a specific need state drink and the reasons for their consumption. Now you can see there that we added icons um, to show each one of these drinks. Now because these drinks, the, the icons were so, um, had so many elements of the actual drink, we didn't need to specify what those icons were. Now this worked in an Argentinian context, they were able to say, yeah, well, that is a Fernet Branca bottle, uh, that is a wine bottle, that is a mate, that, but in, it's always recommended to um, clarify what the icons means because there is, uh, this depend highly on, on, on the cultural conditions or reading conditions, right? Um, so, and in this um, second, table, we, we show how different stages, uh, this is a communication strategy displayed in a table. Um, this communication strategy aimed at generating awareness of, of a disease and a product to, to treat it. And what we did is that we organized the objective, the messages, and the recipients of each phase uh, based on specific moments of, of the disease, right? Or on the, the, the symptoms, the diagnosis, and, and the treatment. And if you can see, uh, the, very, the last row also shows the recipients, and we had um, the, we, we try to show how um, the communication should be directed to more to generalist um, 
doctors at the beginning and less to specialists. And as time goes by, that relationship between the recipient changed. So um, changing time, right? Like going back to this sad McDonald's employee, how can we explain in a funny way uh, a terrible reality, which is that these kids are becoming robots, right? Like they are changing in time and they feel, they're literally feeling diminished. So we did this, which is, it's a line graph, right? It shows the change of an element, this case the employee, over time. And so we said like, so we have this person who enters, like he's a hero, he's going, he's got his first job at McDonald's and to become a reduced things that, again, like um, product, like working on like the machines, depending on the area they work, but even if they're working on customer service, they have to get all these um, productive, uh, their productive brain on and their efficiency brain on and they're under surveillance and they have to leave their personality uh, behind the moment they, they cross, they enter the, their shift and they, so um, this was a way to explain, I know, it's, there's a metaphor operating here as well, right, which is something that, um, it's, another, it's another thing because content-based no, um, knowledge allows us to think of metaphors and if we can include that, something can be better understood if we see it under the light of a metaphor. So this metaphor served us to prove our point, right? And to be honest, what's the data here, right? What, what can we say? There's no real data, but we could really see, and because we, we have me and my, and, and my colleague who were working on this project actually worked at McDonald's, that by the fifth day we thought that that was a terrible job, and we really felt like that last um, image, um, we said, like, this is really, this is the emotion of, of a person, uh, what they're going through. So this was a powerful way of communicating it. Um, with, with some humor as well, because yeah, it was, it was not nice. Um, then if we have to show relationship between information, the four quadrant graph, I've seen examples of this in the presentations and I could notice how the audience all of a sudden like got really engaged with what they were seeing, but because they, they're really good to, to, yeah, to showing how where uh, a, a certain phenomenon is, is located with respect to two coordinate pairs, right? And here, it's, they are so diagram, they, they're so schematized, right? That it helps understand something that can be complex. And so maybe it is reductive to think something in these terms, but it can be very, very powerful. So in the first case, we, we show when and how two different age groups consume alcoholic beverages. So there is, there was a weekly consumption and a weekend consumption, but and the the consumptions could be also individual or grouple. And again, we have the colors here showing different age brackets, and we could immediately see that there is uh, how the the consumption of um, in the um, in the weekend the grouple is common for for these two age groups, which is also showing that there can be an area of opportunity for that, uh, for that moment uh, we, uh, of, the, of time, right, and that, um, and that way of, con of consumption. 
In the other one, what we are showing is that the, the, the graph is helping us to see the niche in which a nutrient concept can operate. Right? So this, is, this was for uh, the concept uh, of a new uh, drink. And we knew that um, there were uh, soft drinks occupying the space of uh, something that a drink that has flavor, but that it's not healthy. And we have water occupying the space of a healthy drink, but not flavor. And this concept that was a healthy drink, but with flavor, had some 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 space. So you can see that showing this graph, like we have the words and the words are providing context to, to, to the graph, but the graph itself is helping visualizing the market potential and the niche for, for these strengths. Um, then we have arrows, right, which is, okay, very basic thing of, um, yeah, just, we have an illustration, we have attributes, we could have listed the attributes of that, uh, of that, of that new concept of a drink, just, just a list and uh, bullet points and yeah, th this is how the packaging should look like to appeal its audience. But we had co-designed that packaging with, um, with potential customers. So we decided, okay, let's put it, let, let's put it in the slide let's, and let's indicate what attributes, let, let's put those must have um, directly correlated to the, the image of, of the drink. Uh, as part of the same project, we had this uh, potential consumer, we had a persona, we knew what the, the, the features and the characteristics of this, uh, of this person was. So we, we added this character that, by the way, repeated in different slides to, to help tell the story. Um, and we had, uh, we associated each one of, of the this persona features to elements that, uh, that accompany them in, in the journey across the, the different slides that we had. So we know that they, they, they care about the money uh, and they are smart buyers, so we put a wallet there and, well, they're healthy people, so you can see the grocery, um, the grocery bag full of healthy, healthy stuff. Um, so, yeah, th this kind of things can, can make uh, a presentation more of a, of a story and something more interesting to, to tell. And yeah, the word cloud, um, yeah, they, sometimes the kind of information that we need to, to present is, uh, is variable. So I have used word clouds to list connotations associated to, in the first case, this new concept uh, of drink. We, we, we also had to test different names. So this was, um, a potential name and what, what associations it uh, arised in the aroused in the in the minds of, of the customers and in in the second one yeah, we had like connotations of what we call a territory for ideation that was highly productive to ideate new new ideas um, so these are some of what I have called simple frameworks, like resources that are at hands of, of everyone and that can help to make a presentation a bit more visual and more easier to digest. Um, now, there are more complex frameworks, and I'm adding the calendar. I know everyone knows what a calendar is, but it's incredibly productive to show information as well. And we have the double diamond, and then I put others because they aren't really 
uh, they really depend again on the information we wanted to present and we'll, we'll see them once we get there but then um, let's see so the calendar um, again like we are all familiar it's a double entry table with days and hours and it helped us um, describing uh, the, the, a week in the lives of, of two different consumer segments, right? So we're, uh, we're still uh, using the codes you've seen these colors before. Um, so icons were used here to represent the alcoholic and non-alcoholic drinks, and we use also icons to represent the, the activities. So you can imagine that if we had had to write how the weeks of these consumer segments was, in, um, in, in a report, it could have been a lot of information and who would have wanted to read that. So this way made it, it was an easier way for us to, to present, to have a snapshot of what the, the lives and also to compare the differences between the two. When putting one next to another, you can see, you can start seeing the differences in that, uh, in that information and if you have to um, do that just by reading text, it might take longer. Um, so the double diamond, right, or design process, um, it can, it's a good framework to explain how we went in the first case from problems to solutions, right. Um, in this case, it was a good way of summarizing the activities and how we went from the what we call the not so good moments, which were bad moments, to pain points, to problem areas, and how those problem areas became um, opportunities, and how we got ideas from those opportunities that we uh, uh, that that derived in solutions. So in this case, it was not only the double diamond communicating that process, um, how that process went, but also. We tried to give an idea of uh, the, uh, how the, the amount of information in each one was um, reduced and then amplified depending on, on the moment of the, of the process that we were in. And here you can see, I'm going to say something here, like you can see that the first number is 175, the second is 40 in, in the circles and the uh, third is 7 and we tried, of course, that if you think, well, the scale is wrong, right? Because if we had to represent, let's say, the diameter of that circle represented the 175 uh, not so good moments, it would be like massive. And but sometimes, because again, the context doesn't allow to represent this in the right scale, we had to. Um, like leave aside some of that um, ex like preciseness that uh, and go for the impact. Um, in the second uh, example, we we use this to uh, explain the process to explain the process of an ideation workshop uh, to to stakeholders. Yeah, how are we doing with time? I think we're almost two minutes. All right. Yeah. So I'm going to jump off this. So things to consider, right? Um, when you are working on a presentation, uh, all attributes of graphic elements communicate something, right? So think of spatial attributes, shape, size, orientation, position. Uh, they are saying something 
So think of those when you're trying to convey your message. Think of feeling attributes as well. Color, texture, and value also can be elements you can use to deliver your, your message. Um, now, prioritize communicative impact over accuracy, right? Visualization aims to facilitate understanding of the information and exact representation is less critical. Again, go for impact because you're not actually dealing with numbers here, right? So no need to be that precise. Uh, use color intentionally and be mindful of established color associations. Be mindful if you're going to go um, red has usually is used to represent negative things. Green is usually good. So if you're going for paint with for red, good opportunities in green, good. But then uh, be mindful, be mindful of those of those uh, associations, and define what's important to say through color, right? Because you don't want to put a lot of colors and have your presentation uh, looking like a circus. You want to use uh, color purposefully. Um, now make the presentation structure visually explicit. That will help the readers orientate themselves, know where they are. Um, have clear indexes for sections, types of sections. I know that this, this may be like a rule of thumb, but it's good to, to remind it. Um, yeah, let readers know where they are putting numbers, uh, assign different colors to, to different sections to, um, to make it easier to, uh, to understand where, where they are. And now, the presentation can be more understandable by linking elements in, on different slides. So assign the same template slide for the similar role in the, in the structure, right? If we have information of a certain type, something is a cover, should look like a cover. Something is a um, a finding, it should look like a finding. Um, and maintain the color coding consistent throughout the presentation, right? Here in this example of the, the calendar, you can see how we, we keep consistent, like we have one age group, we have a second age group, and we keep that the same along the presentation so that um, we establish our own language within the, the presentation, right? And yeah, when it comes to template use, these are miniatures, but just by looking at the miniatures, you can tell that you can group them in different in different sets. So someone who has to read a 60-page uh, report may be able to say, okay, well, at least I have an idea of what it looks like. So uh, last thing, download resources, use them. You don't need technical skills to create infographics, but you do need to know what to use and when. You need more semiotic knowledge Again, if you think, if you have ever played Pictionary and represented an idea through images, it's something that you, you can adventure into this world. So thank you uh, very much. <laughs>